Welcome to Resilience Unraveled, featuring scientists, practitioners, experts and everyday people with knowledge, tips, experience and great stories to share to help you get a grip of your life. We'll give you insights into a range of subjects, including reducing your stress, improving your emotional intelligence, health and well-being and controlling your negative thoughts. By doing this, you'll be able to improve your resilience, confidence, control and perform better every day to live a more productive and purposeful life. For a free resilience ebook, listen through to the end for details. Here's your host, Dr. Russell Thackeray. So today I'm talking to Joshua Smythe, um, who's over the pond in America. Hi, Joshua. Hi, it's nice to be with you. So tell me where you are. I am uh, in Pennsylvania, the great state of Pennsylvania, at the Pennsylvania State University uh, in University Park, Pennsylvania, in the middle of the state. So. And you're all very proud of Pennsylvania right there, aren't you? I was, I was at there last year, and there seems to be a special sense of pride there. It's a, it's a diverse state. We range from big cities to rural, beautiful country, and uh, it's, a, it's a nice place to be. Excellent. And so if you had to describe to someone... What is it you what is it you do what how would you start what would you tell them I am a uh, professor at the university who um, my scholarship and teaching and mentoring broadly focuses on understanding how people's sort of perceptions and interactions with the world shape their health and in particular I'm uniquely interested in how people respond to stress and so emotionally, behaviorally, biologically, how we respond to stress, how we can manage stress and interventions or policies or practices that people can do or we can make available to people to help manage their stress ultimately with the idea of improving their happiness and well-being, their resilience, uh, as well as their health outcomes in terms of longevity and quality of, of their life and, and daily living. Okay. Um... Well, let's let's put something on the table first of all. It, certainly in the UK, the word stress is used and abused to the point of that it's almost meaningless. So, because people say, tell me they're stressed, now. that's a very stressy thing you're saying. And, it, and the words just entered the language to become, you know, become everything. It's become a verb, a noun, an adverb, it's everything. So, so tell me what you mean by stress. Let's start there. Yeah, it's a, it's a great observation. It's not just in England. That's all over. Yeah. Uh, I... I often joke that when I sit on an airplane and someone asks me what I do and I say that I study stress, I have yet to get the answer. I don't know what that is or, you know, I've never heard of that. So it's very ubiquity is both a great asset for, for the interest and, and experiential understanding of stress. But as you say, the topic is used pretty loosely. And I think in, as people who get very much into the weeds on trying to think about stress, the easy way to think about it is that there are different parts of stress, and there are uh, stimuli in our environment that have the potential to threaten or harm us. And evolutionarily, that was often a, a literal threat. It was a you know an animal or danger or something to um, to us as you know being able to live safely. There's clearly uh, threats in the environment that aren't threats to our life or safety, but are nonetheless threats to our self or self-concept or our emotional integrity or things like that. There's the other side of that, of course, is our stress response. And that is our psychological, our behavioral, our physiological 
responses to those threats in our environment. And that, of course, is much more idiosyncratic to an individual. So what I respond to it, how much I respond, uh, is, of course, different than how other people respond, even if the stimuli, the, the event, the stressor, as we call it, is very similar. And that is actually the, the richness of the field and the interest, right, is what do people respond to? How do we uh, figure that out? How do they respond? How can we help them perhaps respond less when it's not necessary or respond more appropriately when it is necessary to deal with these challenges in their environment? So, so, so that's interesting the way you describe that. So you're saying that stress, the stressor is an inter- external factor and the responses are your internal um, responses to the external stressor. So where does things like um, personal anxiety and such like fit into that? Because that's an internal stressor, isn't it? Yes, it's a, it's a great, another great question. So these are, are sort of the classic issues. And uh, sometimes, you know, we as researchers think we're, we're inventing and thinking about new things. And so much of my work is focused on this very issue you're, you're talking about, which is, does it have to be from the environment? Right. And classically, that is the school of thought that, again, it's, it's literally an environmental stimulus. And as you point out, well, wait, wait, what if I'm worrying about the future? Uh, I'm anxious about something that might happen. I'm fearful. Or I'm reliving an event that happened days, months, years ago, and it's not actually happening to me at that moment. And, you know, thinking about or worrying about an event um, creates a stimulus, it creates a stressor, a symbolic representation of a stressor uh, that is in many ways just as real as if uh, the event were actually happening to us. Mm. So put another way, the more vividly we can recreate something from the past or worry about something in the future, the more our responses, behaviorally, psychologically, and even biologically, look like they would if we actually were in that circumstance. Uh, and as I alluded to a moment ago, you know, we thought this was a great insight, but in fact, people have been writing about this for literally thousands of years. Uh, you know, ancient Greek and Roman philosophers, among many others, sort of talked about this, that, you know, we don't confine our suffering to the moment, right? We're the only animal that sort of suffers about the past and the future uh, because of our capacity to sort of create these stressors because of our intellect, which is broadly, of course, a good thing. And, and, and forgive me if I'm wrong, but you know, one of the things that I frequently discuss with people is the fact that stress is a response. And the response is the same for things which are good as well as things which are, I'm doing the parenthesis marks with my fingers at the moment, things which are bad. So st- the, 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 the process of stress actually gives it the energy to do things which are great. So if you go away on holiday, you have the stress response, but you know, it's not necessarily a bad thing, is it? Yeah, it's again a super interesting question and uh, and incredibly important to this definitional issue, right? So, so um, that that point of view largely emerges from more physiological or biological based approaches to stress, and the reason for that is we have we have a very well developed anatomical neurological system to support what is typically called the fight or flight response or a stress response. And, and this is again in response to perceived threat in our environment, our 
our brain is sort of hardwired to screen incoming information very quickly, internal and external, uh, for threat, and then it, it activates, you know, that sort of adrenaline response and, and other uh, sympathetic arousal is the technical term where our body gears up for action. And that is a stress response. And as you know, many people have noted, but, but if I go on a roller coaster or I'm on a very exciting first date or I'm uh, getting ready for a holiday or a wedding or a positive event, that my body also engages in those processes. And so in many ways, uh, any attempt to adapt to an environmental challenge, good or bad, that's changing from what we normally do, that's sort of out of norm, can be construed as, as a stressor. Yes. It turns out, however, uh, that when you're doing something that's nice, uh, it does not have the negative consequences as when you're doing something that's negative. Uh, and the, the terms that have been around for some time on this are sort of stress, which is the bad, and eustress, E-U stress, uh, yes. which sort of Hans Selye and others popularized in the mid-1900s to sort of talk about more positive events where I see the outcome is not threatening or harmful to me, but something that in even though it's a challenge or a difficulty is going to enrich or uh, improve my life. So getting married, going on vacation, uh, passing an exam that allows me to have some new position, those are all quite stressful but associated with much more positive outcomes. And that seems to protect us uh, both emotionally as well as biologically from negative outcomes. Hmm. So, so this might be a very trite solution. So is part of this stress response then to avoid the misassociation of events as being negative when they actually could be positive? Yeah, the, the capacity to evaluate what an event means to you is one of the most critical determinants of how people respond. And so if, if I look at an event and say, this is, this is a disaster, it's unfair, uh, it's unjust to me, I cannot manage it, it will absolutely destroy my life as I know it, I will have a very strong stress response. If I look at that same event and say, wow, that's bad luck, that's really going to be difficult for a while, but I will get over it and I will move on. It's exactly the same stimulus, the same stressor, but I will have a much less uh, pronounced and likely less uh, persistent or, or shorter duration stress response. The, the only risk in adopting this, well, just look at it differently, is we, we want to be very careful about not, you know, to use a term... Uh, that's that's used in other literature, sort of blaming the victim, where you know we then start to say, well, you know, it's just your fault that you're stressed because you're not looking at the situation right. And if you just you know would be happier about it, you, there would be no need to be stressed. So I I do worry at, at times about oversimplifying this message that how we look at it matters, which I I agree with but that it's not the entirety of the situation. You can't look at some situations and convince yourself easily that it's really not that bad, if in fact, objectively, it is quite bad. Hmm. That's interesting. 
So what would be an example of something that would be that bad? One of the uh, really most profound stressors that individuals can face in their life is a loss of a loved one. So if my spouse or my child dies, uh, that is, uh, in most cases, really one of the most stressful things that people will go through. And it's relatively common in a prevalent sense. Most of us are going to lose loved ones. It might be a parent, a child, a spouse, what have you. And it is not helpful to go to those people and say, well, just look on the bright side. You really should just think about why that's a good thing, right? However well-intended such advice may be, it is very clear that that is not likely to make the event less stressful. And and in contrast, if you try to um, convince people of that, uh, it will likely backfire and make them much more unhappy. So, so you're sort of, and that makes a lot of sense to me, so you're equating the sort of emotional side of stress as having um, a different series of methods to manage those stressors as being an attitudinal cause of stress. Because attitudinal things are something you can change with mindset, but a, a deep emotional, like like grief or something, or sadness, would be, would be something you couldn't trivialise with that sort of strategy. Exactly, exactly right. So you need, in a sense... A different toolkit to deal with the different types of stressor. Is that what you're saying? I think it's even slightly more complex, which is every stressor has multiple attributes. So the death of a spouse, uh, as to continue that example, yeah. uh, includes grief and bereavement and loss uh, of a loved, cherished relationship. For some people, depending on the nature of their relationships more broadly and their stage in life. Um, that may comprise a relatively greater or lesser degree of their overall social engagement. So if my, my spouse was the only person I was close to, that's very different than if I have many other close friends, family, etc. So there's a social network component. It has practical complications. I have to manage law, estate. There may be financial considerations depending on if that person was uh, the income generator in the relationship. And so there are practical aspects, there are social aspects, there are emotional aspects, there are spiritual aspects. And so each of these stressors is multifaceted and we need tools uh, unique to not just the stressor, but the unique role of the stressor in an individual's life at that moment. Interesting. So, so uh, I mean, that, again, without over-trivializing this, but there's a lot of people in the world who sort of get the stressor piece. But the thing they struggle with is the actual, how do you deal with stress response? What are some of the toolkits you can use? I know there's, there's lots of pop psychology in the world, but I'm just wondering if there are more scientifically valid approaches. There, there are, uh, and, and there are certainly many. Um, and, you know, I, I will also say that for people who are profoundly disturbed by an event, uh, particularly the, the more serious events that we've been hinting at, the loss of a, a loved one or, you know, displacement, war, trauma, abuse, you know, very serious things, you know, um, self-treatment may not be sufficient. And obviously, if people need professional assistance through medical or, or psychiatric or psychological care, they, of course, should search that out. But we and others have been 
trying to answer that question more broadly about what what does work and under what circumstances. And um, one of the things that we have discovered, and certainly others have as well, is that one of the pathways that leads to poor outcomes is that when um, a person responds to stress, uh, and, and we're talking now about negative stress, so uh, in most cases, although someone could respond, I suppose, to positive stress in this way, uh, we often feel bad, right, sort of colloquially. We, we are upset, we're depressed, we're angry, we're hurt, whatever. And that is not a pleasant thing. Very few of us like that. And so often what happens is we then start to cope with the event. We start to manage the event. And this is a critical uh, sort of point of, of di um, diversion or divergence between sort of what our options are. And so on the one hand, we might try to actually deal with the problem. Um, or we might deal with our emotional responses, uh, or we might avoid the problem completely because it's bothersome, to, to give three very concrete examples. And so let me, let me try to, to make this even you know, more real. So I have a difficult job. It's incredibly stressful. My boss, I feel, mistreats me, and I don't get on with my coworkers, and I find this incredibly stressful and I'm angry and depressed and sad about it. So, so the, the workplace is the stressor, and, and these are my responses. Yeah. So in the first example, I might try to uh, exert some improvement on the workplace. I might um, change my behavior. I might work with other people to change behavior. I may work on communication skills. These are all efforts that would be designed to reduce the potency of the stressor to sort of change the environment so that this problem doesn't keep reoccurring. Yeah. And although we can spin out, you know, issues that that's not going to be helpful, generally we'd say that's a good thing. On the other hand, I might deal with my emotional responses um, and I can deal with them well. I might go to therapy and try to manage my depression and anger. I also might decide to drink alcohol heavily. Yeah. Uh, and that is actually effective in some sense that when I'm drinking, those emotional feelings might bother me less. Clearly, we would not think that's an adaptive coping strategy in the long run. So, and, and avoiding similarly, if I just sort of block it all off, I don't acknowledge it, you know, those two strategies are helpful only in the very short term about making me feel less bad right away. And in doing that, that's a decision that we can intervene on. So one of the most important things that we try to do to help people manage stress more positively is to make sure their goals, what they're actually trying to cope with, is not simply to get rid of the short-term unhappiness or distress, but rather focusing on long-term outcomes, improving the situation or their responses in a long-term way so that, that we can sort of bend the trajectory of their improvement over time rather than have them just bounce between a negative circumstance and a, and a sort of uh, self-medication or avoidance kind of response. Yeah. So, so, so to, I mean, a lot of people tell me that they're very overworked 
and um, you know they've got a lot of work. It's it's relentless. Blah blah blah. There's all sorts of things going on. They go home to, at night and they sit down in front of the television and they have a glass of wine. And what they're doing there is they're they're dulling the effect of the stressor in a sense. There aren't they? Because they can't. They're not changing the stressor. They're just is that exactly. So so they so not so basically they're, they're not changing their response. And they're not changing the stressor; they're just dulling their ability to monitor the effect on itself. That's right. Right. That's right. And of course, that's and and we talk about that in resilience terms as being the thing that, if you don't have a resilience toolkit, people often turn to drugs and alcohol, and it makes you know you can keep a performance going in the short term because because there is sort of temporary relief, but actually, you're doing yourself more harm in the long term using that strategy. Exactly correct. I mean, I know it seems like the statements are the leading obvious, as we say, but it but it, it can't be said enough, kind of that actually that slide into using alcohol or drugs or um, even prescription drugs is something that's quite unconscious in a way, isn't it? That the social drinking can easily turn into something more serious. And it's a it's a slow, often a very slow sort of gradual process because yeah. as we start to use that. You know, and in fact, you know, if it is one drink once in a while, that's a very different thing than it becomes one drink nightly, it becomes two drinks nightly, and these sort of gradual increases, and in part because the circumstance is not changing. Yes. You know, if you're not dealing with your emotional responses and you're not dealing with the with the environment that's creating the stress, it's simply going to persist and cumulatively increase the load, the burden on the individual to manage, and then the the, the sort of non- helpful maladaptive coping responses likely are going to have to increase to keep up. Yeah. And so we try to break that cycle. We try to say, how can we teach people skills to change their environment, to change their responses, but looking a little bit more long-term. Uh, and, and in fact, sometimes that's a bit more work. You know, it's harder to do those kinds of things than sit and watch the television or have a glass of wine, right? So it is a little bit hard work to promote better long-term outcomes but we of course and i think most people agree that that's worth it uh, overall yeah and it's, so it's something to look for in yourself or in a partner at home at night to actually look for this slight slightly unconscious or habitual approach to dealing with the day by numbing yourself or dealing with any form of um any form of negative continuing stress by using that sort of approach it's actually as soon as you see someone doing that you need to actually start waking them up in a sense before they drink themselves or drug themselves into a a less coping a less useful place to be because actually i'm guessing you if you can't change the stressor you must change your stress response and i think that's the next bit isn't it so there must be a, a range of tools yeah that's exactly right and and you know there there is a particularly in, you know, sort of many historical traditions in, in uh, psychology, there, there's an emphasis on changing the problem. Uh, this is, you know, very true of British and American cultures, you know, sort of that you, you tackle the issue head on and change the environment. And I will say that when that is successful, that can be tremendously helpful. Yeah. Uh, but as you just noted, it's not always easy. Uh, and sometimes it's flat on impossible. And and so we are then in those circumstances much better off focusing our energies on changing our responses uh, and how how we res- you know we respond or or manage 
the, um, the consequences of, of that stressful environment. Yeah. One of the, the refrains that, that we often hear, and, and sort of going back to where you started with an example of people saying, you know, my work is incredibly stressful, my life is stressful, I have these bills, I have these relationship issues, I have work problems, is they say, I, I can't deal with it all. It's too much. Yeah. And, you know, I think about it, and you say change it, and I, I can't even manage, and that's why I need to go have a drink, I need to go watch TV, I need to think, I need to distract myself because I find it overwhelming. And so one of the techniques that we've really been interested in is to think about how, how do we help people not feel like the challenges in their life in their totality are overwhelming. Mm. And when we've looked at that, we've, we've sort of broadly thought about two issues. And, and one of them is why do people not... Um, feel willing or comfortable or able to share or talk or even get help yeah. uh, for these processes. And uh, there's a broader issue of uh, stigma, of course, um, you know, that, that admitting weakness or negative responses or insecurities, etc., you know, is often stigmatized and people are embarrassed or ashamed. But it's also practical in that people are often very worried about the responses others will have if they share this information or this information is public. So that if I tell a friend that I'm really struggling at work or uh, in my relationship, will, will that come back to hurt me even worse? Yeah. So will there be sort of negative responses or more embarrassment or people will gossip about me? And so this fear of negative social responses uh, is a big issue. And the other, as I mentioned, is this issue of totality, that sometimes thinking about everything you have to do uh, is overwhelming. And so we've developed a series of techniques um, that we broadly refer to as expressive writing techniques right. that try to help people break down and manage some of the challenges and stressors in their life through uh, writing exercises, sort of self-guided uh, expressive writing about their thoughts and feelings regarding their stressful experiences. Yeah, and this, I think this is how um, Janet came across you because you have two books on Amazon around this subject, don't you? So uh, it's opening up by writing it down and the writing cure. That's exactly right. Yeah, my colleague James Pennebaker, uh, who who really started this area of research, and then myself, who came on very early, have been studying this for many years now, uh, 30, over 30 years now. And it's a really remarkable process because it is uh, taking something that's remarkably low tech. So in the era of, you know, artificial intelligence and AI and uh, apps for everything, we're sort of advocating, you know, pen to paper, uh, figuratively, if not even literally, mm. uh, to sort of write about experiences. Um, and going back to where we started earlier, we talked about, you know, this idea that I can vividly imagine something, my, you know, my, my big, powerful brain, which is such a wonderful thing. You know, I'm so glad I have it. You know, we all have these incredible brains that let us do so many things. But but by vividly imagining problems, we recreate them and I get myself stressed and I find it overwhelming. And, and, and then I, I avoid it or I have a drink or, or whatever it may be. 
And part of that is that when you just sort of sit and think and vividly imagine something, it is sensor sensorily rich, right? You have images and emotions and you relive it. And it's also the sort of totality of an experience. So I, I think about work or, or a relationship and it's many complexities. But writing uh, and language more generally is very interesting because we can't do that. I can't write everything at once. Mm. So what do I have to do? Well, I start to put order onto it. I start to say, well, you know, when I write, I, I maybe I should put things in temporal order or maybe I should have you know, it's structured by people or characters in a story or, and, and right away, think about what that does. That takes this incredibly, you know, complex emotional experience and starts to break it into parts and in put order. And two important things have already happened. The first is a part is not so overwhelming, much like eating, right? If I have a huge piece of meat or something and I shove it all in my mouth, I, I'm going to choke. If I cut off a little bite, I can manage that, right? A, a sort of a, a simple metaphor, but it's this idea of breaking things up into bits that by themselves may be more manageable, less overwhelming emotionally. And then the other is by putting order and structure and um, coherence onto these experiences, I create affective distance, right? Which is a fancy way of saying, I adopt a slightly different perspective, and rather than the perspective of the experiencer, where it's all emotion and reaction, I start to look at it as an outside person, almost a third-person perspective. Mm -hmm. And in doing so, the neural, literally the neural representation, how your brain encodes those experiences and reactions changes. Uh, and there's been a, some fabulous work on this that shows that helps us reduce our emotional responses moving forward. So the more we can adopt this neutral abstract observer, which we've shown can be enhanced by expressive writing, we can have sort of less inca incapacitating or sort of overwhelming emotional responses. Well, I'm actually having a look at the book now as we talk. So um, I'm, I'm, I'm quite amazed that and it makes sense, doesn't it? Because when we're self-coaching, when we're writing strategy, when we're when we're evaluating ourselves, the idea of writing things down to break things into chunks to slow your brain down is actually a very accepted way of um, way of working. That's exactly right. So why wouldn't you use a technique like this? So so ex you talk about it being expressive writing rather than any other form of writing. So 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 what do you mean by that? Yeah, great question. So you know. One of the, the sort of core questions to this is if I'm writing about an experience, uh, what do I have to write about? Mm. And put another way, what is the most effective way to write about it? And very early on, uh, what, what we started to look at was what elements of the experience are important. And um, my colleague, Jemmy Pennebaker, very early on did a, a very, very elegant series of studies around the necessity for thoughts or facts versus emotions yeah. uh, and feelings. And to oversimplify a little bit, essentially he had some people write only about the, the facts, the events, the, the thoughts, so purely cognitive. 
he had other people write purely about the emotions, almost a pure cathartic approach, right? Just get it all out there, get your emotions expressed. And then another group of people uh, were, were asked to write in a way that, that not only had both thoughts and emotions, but attempted to sort of integrate or resolve them. And importantly, uh, in this kind of work, you don't let people pick what they want to do, where it might be something about the individual. You, you pick people at random into these different circumstances. So you really are certain that you're getting at the, the causal influence of the, of the topics. And what he found was that only those people who attempted to include and integrate thoughts and feelings both were those that showed benefit. The people who simply catharted their emotions did not get better. Um, they, they sort of didn't make progress. And the people who very analytically described the events, um, even though they seemed to be putting some structure, their emotions uh, and their responses afterwards were relatively uninfluenced. So there was something about having to integrate uh, both thoughts and feelings that appears necessary. And so we sort of have started calling that expressive writing as opposed to, um, you know, venting or catharsis or just sort of to-do lists or, or um, sort of the structural elements of, of planning and action writing. So effectively, Subsequently, we, so, so, so just to paraphrase, are you saying, therefore, it's the blend of those two processes, the describing the events and your own reaction to them? So that, that, so in other words, you're going back to the past and you're talking about what actually happened and your own, your, your own approach to that, almost in the third person. That's right. right. And, and what we did subsequently is to, to um, explore how, how best to do that. And there's been a lot of work on that topic. And, and one of the, the clearest themes is um, from my work and others is that if you can impose narrative structure, mm -hmm. and so if you can approach the writing about your thoughts and feelings as if it were a narrative, and that might be a temporal structure, so it has a clear beginning, middle, and end, it, and it attempts to, as you just said, adopt that more descriptive yeah. uh, and sort of third-person approach, that, coupled with both thoughts and feelings, seems to maximize the likelihood that these writing exercises are helpful in the long run. It, it, you seem to, it's, it's interesting because I can see the, the sort of correlation between the talking therapies and actually just doing this with a third person and actually using writing as a way of coaching yourself because actually it's the self-reflection part of the period after the writing, I guess, which makes sense of what you've written. Sorry, that wasn't... That's exactly that, right. That's, that's exactly right. And when we started this, we, we did, of course, compare it to talk therapy. Right. You know, and, and much of our, you know, as you alluded to our, our, our first book, we called The Writing Cure, you know, which was a nod to... Uh, earlier work, uh, you know, most notably Freud and the talking cure, yeah. where we sort of are, are clearly drawing out the analogies. I will again just emphasize that, you know, we are not suggesting that uh, expressive writing that one does on their own is a replacement for qualified professional help where it's needed. That's not our claim whatsoever. So that, you know, we're not making any false equivalencies here. Mm. Uh, but more that, you know, this is sort of ongoing self-maintenance 
where you know you you're dealing with challenges, and this is one way to sort of help you uh, manage these challenges in ways that that helps you be healthy and happy in the long run. It's not a panacea. It does not you know take horrible things happening in your life and make them go away immediately. I mean that that's you know that's not sadly that's not possible in any way that I'm aware of. Uh, but it is sort of you know, akin to exercise, you know, you, you do it and it helps clearly and unequivocally you to be healthier and happier in the long run. Um, that doesn't mean nothing bad will ever happen to you if you exercise, right? So, so this is really interesting because I, I can absolutely see it working, particularly if you enjoy writing. And, and I'm going to put my cards on the table in a minute and say I hate, I'd hate that sort of writing. I'm guessing it doesn't work for everyone. <laughs> but the question I was going to ask is, there's a lot of trendy talk in the world of social media and Silicon Valley about daily journaling. I mean, in the old days, it used to be called keeping a diary, but, you know, there has to be a yeah. new trendy phrase. And there's actually there's quite a lot of correlation between um, enhanced well-being and personal satisfaction and happiness and mood and people that keep a diary or people that keep a journal. So are you saying, are you actually saying you don't need to do this just when things get tough? There's actually a as an overwhelm, there's an overall well-being, a positive well-being effect on people that journal anyway. Just because actually you're talking about a temporal wave narrative, aren't you? Say, I started this, I did this, I did this. This is what happened. They said this, this, said that. Effectively, diarists or journalists are doing the same, this technique all the time. A lot of really interesting things you raised. So um, people keep diaries for different reasons, but also very clearly in different ways. Yeah. And, and to oversimplify, there are sort of two kinds of diarists. There are diarists who write on a very fixed schedule regardless of what happens in their life. So, you know, three times a week, and I do it, and no matter what. And that's very different than a group of people who open with, dear diary, today, let me tell you what happened. And it's only when something very important happened. Yes. And so, um, you know, those are sort of very different styles. And I think the degree to which it's helpful or analogous to what we're talking about ends up being the degree to which the, the, the use of the diary includes thoughts and feelings and self-reflection, as you suggest. So some diarists who routinely write, it becomes more of a, of a task list and an agenda list, and it, it might lose the emotional and self-reflective components. And insofar as those aren't there, I don't know that they're going to be helpful. Mm. Um, but those, if they're included regularly, or even if they're often not there, but then when a problem happens, the diary content evolves to include them. So it adapts to meet the challenges that the person is going through, we would expect that to be really helpful. And that's fascinating. And and, and I notice, and I'm sure this, let me ask the question, I notice on the, on the cover of the book, there's a picture of a pen, and, and you've got this word writing it down. You're not saying type it up in Evernote or another <laughs> app. And, and, yeah. and I am very, very conscious of this and this need to, that, you know, we've almost forgotten the lost art of writing. I, you know, I see in academic research this, this new research around the correlation between learning retention and writing things down using a pen and a, and this piece of technology called a piece of paper. And, and yeah. are, you, are you saying the same thing that you should be creating a, a, a book, a physical book and writing it down? Yeah. 
I, I sometimes feel like, uh, you know, when you meet the, the younger kids today who are true digital natives, you, you have to show them a book and yeah. tell them it's like the internet made a paper. Um, the, you know, the question is, I think, um, a little bit more subtle than this. So we have done crazy, funny experiments where we've, we've had people type, we've had people speak into a tape recorder, we've had people write longhand, uh, we've had people even write on an old Etch-a-Sketch, uh, if you remember that old toy where you can delete it after, after it's done. And it doesn't so much seem to matter what the specific medium of writing or expression is with some important caveats. So the, the, the most important, I think, is language. Um, there has been some interesting work on expression through non-language, so through music or dance or art, uh, and that may be uh, helpful. Um, I certainly am not implying it's not helpful, but it's a very different process um, we really do think language is important. Turning these experiences into words and language helps that emotional distancing. It helps facilitate the change in the neural representation of the brain from what is sort of an emotional and image-based representation to a language and fact-based representation. And that seems to be important. So language, I think, at least within the concept of expressive writing or, or expressive therapies um, is a different kind of thing. The other, of course, is the, the user's facility with the medium. So if I cannot type and you ask me to type, uh, that's going to create barriers for me doing the expression. And those are often needless barriers. They're not helpful. Uh, and so anything that impedes a person's comfort uh, is going to be uh, a problem. I, I do want to come back, though, to one thing that we haven't talked about explicitly. And you mentioned social media, and then now we're also talking about, you know, should I actually just put it on my blog or on my Facebook post every day? And that is, um, is there an intended audience? And throughout our work, um, we have really emphasized that this writing, this process, is for yourself. Right. And it turns out that that's incredibly important. Because when you're writing for yourself and you know that no one else is going to see it, you are honest or more honest. <laughs> you're honest to the best of the degree you can be. You are more insightful. You're more revealing. As soon as you start writing for an audience, real or implied, other people might see this. It changes it. Yeah. At a minimum, it pulls back the level and honesty of the disclosure for all of those reasons I, I hinted at earlier, that you're fearful of how other people may respond or that it may change their views of you. And emerging work, work now, looking at, at writing on Facebook and uh, similar kinds of, of venues, it is fairly clear that, that people start to write thinking about the desired impact their writing will have on their audience, their readers. Yeah. And that may be a useful process for some other outcome, but it fundamentally impairs uh, the sort of self-reflection and honest integration of your thoughts and feelings around your, your personal challenges with, um, you know, sort of moving towards that, 
that positive goal. I I'm not saying that some people, of course, could do that publicly, yeah. but evidence is very clear that most people do not. Well, I think the problem with social media is that's often the biggest cause of some younger people's stress in the first place. So equating a stressor with the stress response is 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 counterintuitive, isn't it? So it makes sense to remove the the cure from the cause in that sense. Yes. Okay, Joshua, I've just looked at the clock, and sometimes this this just happens every now and then. So I do apologise. I've just looked at the time and seen how how long we've been chatting. Yeah, I do apologise. Um, look, if people want to get hold of your book and start to investigate the subject in a bit more depth, just remind us the title and where they can find it. Yeah, the most recent book, which is a, a sort of a, a really up-to-date summary of this work, uh, is contained in, in a book that uh, Jamie Pennebaker, my friend and colleague, and, and I wrote called Opening Up by Writing It Down, How Expressive Writing Improves Health and Eases Emotional Pain. This is a very non-technical book, um, so it's based entirely on our understanding of the scientific literature, but it's non-technical and non-scientific, and it concludes with uh, some really concrete suggestions about how people can integrate these practices into their life to sort of promote their own personal well-being. And this, this is hopefully available at your bookstore, and if not, on Amazon and other sort of online uh, retailers. And I have to say, it's very rare on Amazon to look at the reviews, and they might nearly all be four and five stars. So that's something, isn't it? Well, thank you. I appreciate that kind of comment. That's a lot of that's a lot of um, that's a lot of um, positive vibes going on out there. Um, Josh, that's been brilliant. Thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it, and um, I've that's been really really fascinating. I could spend hours chatting to you. Very interesting. And perhaps one day we'll do this all again. So thank you so much for your time. And hopefully people will flock to Amazon and stop buying the book in droves. <laughs> I appreciate it. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. No problem. Take care. We hope you found today's podcast useful. If you did, why not subscribe and listen to our other podcasts? We would love it if you could leave us a review. To access our resilience coaching, contact us at info at qedod.com. And finally, if you'd like to download our free resilience ebook, go to qedod.com slash free ebook. Thanks for listening.